and certainly where focus is isn't on trauma after that person is recovered uh, i don't mean recovered having been successful but where they are moved from you know bridges or, or car park roofs what we must do is capitalize on that time that trust that they've given us and actually try and work out what's been going on understand their story and what often happens is there's an opportunity missed and sadly you know i think the longest job i had if i, if I may be bold enough to uh, to say this, I think the longest job I had was about two and a half hours talking a young person down from a, a cliff uh, in the middle of the night who was detained um, when we did manage to recover her. And she was out the following morning um, and back on a bridge somewhere else in the county that evening. And she was told that, you know, um, she had to take responsibility for her actions and she didn't have any mental illness. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Today we're going to hear from Joseph Sabian. Joe is founder and CEO of Sea Sanctuary, a unique mental health charity rooted in the concept of blue health. Sea Sanctuary has been nominated for won an impressive array of awards, including winner of the Google and Sainsbury's Award for Innovation, winner of Support Worker category and Best Newcomer Award for the National Children and Young People's Awards 2020, among others. Sea Sanctuary has also been commissioned by the NHS for six years and is an approved psychological provider for Cornwall Council and Dorset, Devon and Cornwall Police. Really great to have you on today, Joe. Welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. Hi, Joe. Really good to meet with you. Can you begin by telling us a bit about your story and how you came to found a charity which draws on the therapeutic impact of blue space? Yes, I suppose uh, if I were to go back in time, uh, I would say that the journey started very much with my own um, upbringing, um, which was spent during the um, sort of 1970s as a what they call looked after uh, children or as a looked after child. Um, and the peace and sort of solace that, that, that I found escaping or more accurately running away uh, from, from the children's home repeatedly to find some space. For me, it was either uh, the River Thames, uh, which was the nearest body of water, uh, or in some cases I went as far as Brighton. Uh, and there I found um, a sense of peace probably for the first time in, in my, young, my young life. Um, as I progressed, uh, I, I recognised that I wanted to work with people. Uh, I found people, um, people's behaviours more accurately fa fascinating uh, and so started doing voluntary work and started uh, my training as a, as a therapist. So um, those sort of early years most definitely formed my interest in how we can access the natural environment and what, what it was about the natural environment that could provide that that sense of peace and comfort um, so that was a sort of beginning thank you so thinking back to those very early times that you've touched upon how did you notice internally yourself what the impact of well it was water wasn't it because you mentioned it was the thames uh, initially how did you notice the impact that water was having on you i suppose the the um the 
most brutal answer is certainly on the River Thames. Um, it was nothing short of being terrified at the time. And I need to put that into context uh, as I jumped onto a large piece of polystyrene that I found on the foreshore, jumped onto the Thames with a, a piece of wood uh, and started paddling for my life, not unlike Huckleberry Finn, uh, but slightly more dangerous probably, and that I was dodging boats and barges uh, uh, and couldn't get off because I didn't recognise it was tidal. If we were to look at reframing that word, terrifying, the other word that creeps in is exhilarating. And it was, it was really exhilarating and it was mindful. I was absolutely in the moment because if I wasn't, if I were anywhere else, I would uh, probably not have survived and we wouldn't be talking uh, here today, David. So, you know, for me, it's very much about being in the moment um, but I, I suppose, again, on reflection, what I look at or, or recall is even going down to the sea before I arrived. It was the anticipation of being there. And now I can very vividly recall the smell as I can with, with the beach or in Cornwall. If we have an easterly coming in, there's a really uh, uh, um, noticeable smell. And there's something about the sensory awareness um, that, that's, I think, paramount when when, when looking or featuring the scene, any sort of therapy or process. That's a very uh, uh, traumatic uh, description. It um, sparks in me a memory because young men take terrible risks, don't they? I mean, you've just described one that you took without really full knowledge of the possible consequences. You reminded me when I was a, a late teenager and I was working on a German boat and I came home from the pub late one night and tried to climb on board and fell into the water um, and of course I was very lucky to survive that as well but it's certainly imprinted very clearly in my memory as these things are. So is there much known about the therapeutic value of blue space when you started the charity do you think? No, and interestingly, when I was on board Irene, which is our newly acquired 100-foot uh, tall ship uh, that we run a lot of our therapeutic programmes on, both day and residential, I bumped into a former colleague. Um, I should add, I worked for the NHS for a number of years uh, on their crisis services, now called a home treatment team, and within three different community mental health teams, including uh, when our... Um, office, as it were, was next to the 136 suite uh, in a psychiatric hospital. And I bumped into a colleague um, on board Irene, and he said, how do you feel? You're completely out of the blue. I haven't seen him for a number of years. And I said, what do you mean? How do I feel? He said, you said this would work all those years ago, and people were just laughing at you. Uh, and unfortunately, that was my experience, because I think sometimes there is such preoccupation with the medical model being the only model. So putting aside case formulations as the good old psychologists use, this is much more medical, medically orientated, almost diagnosing and curing. Uh, and, and, and what we miss there is, um, is the root cause, is, is things like functional medicine. We're not getting to grips with what can really work because often we have this sort of predisposed idea we already know what will work based on the medical model and this is what we use and this is what happens and i challenge that and a lot of my colleagues not all of them i hasten to add but a lot of my colleagues were just poo-pooing it and saying no 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 that's not going to work what does the sea give you you know that's you're talking about recreation i said i'm not talking about recreation it's not 
doing something for the sake of doing it. It has therapeutic properties. And at the time, um, it, it, it was just um, scoffed at, to be perfectly frank with you, as were a lot of uh, um, approaches that fell outside of this very strict model uh, uh, in which we had to work uh, and we didn't have a choice in it other than to resign, which is uh, exactly what I did in the end. So Blue Health is, again, there is this uh, current preoccupation with trying to understand that what, what constitutes Blue Health, what it gives us. And of course, to some extent, that's really, really important. But actually, I've changed my focus and I've changed the charity's focus. We now concentrate on the wonder and the awe. You know, it's something that's wonderful and something that's awe-inspiring. And I think as humans, we're always looking for, for dissecting something. It's not a clock. You know, it's, it's not a condition. It's not an ailment. The sea in its own right has, you know, as uh, Hilaire Belloc says, it has moods to fill the storehouse of the mind. You know, there's something that mirrors that of human nature. And it has the peace and tranquility. It has the rage. Uh, has the uncertainty. It's a paradox, as we are as humans. So uh, it's a very, very long answer to your short question, David. So, but, you know, there, there's there's a lot about the sea that we don't know and I don't want to know. OK, um, but I'm going to ask you even more. Uh, Go on, then. I don't mind. Go for it. Well, really, I just want to know what work you do. You've mentioned uh, Irene, who's the, um, how, do you, how did you turn it, the tall ship? She yeah, she, she's, um, <clears throat> she was launched in 1907. So she's 100 foot and she can sleep, including crew, about 14 um, people, um, big wooden vessel. Um, and we've always had, uh, apart from one, we've always had wooden boats because they are poles apart from the more sterile clinical environments that you find in often in psychiatric care and what people are used to. And we prefer that sort of organic nature. We also have a 180-foot um, um, coastal barge, which is in Penryn behind our headquarters, and we run a number of, um, whether it's art groups, one-to-one um, -one therapy on board with process groups, yoga, um, creative writing. We have a raft of different programmes, but the backdrop is the sea. And when you're in the hold, which is parquet flooring, underfloor heating for the winter, when you look out of the portholes and the tide's in, your feet are under the water. Uh, not literally a hasten time because that'd be a problem, but you're, you get you get the gist. You can actually see the sea um, at almost eye height. So everything the charity does really has and, and includes the backdrop of the sea, even the quayside that we work from. We have 80 metres of quayside. We have pods, uh, creative pods set on the quayside with the outlook of the sea. So everything we do, we try to feature the sea as best we can. I think, Joe, that um, the wonder of wood also features in, because the, that's known to have a therapeutic value as well, isn't it? And the, the fact that you're merging something that's that's very much grounded on earth as well as the, the sea at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the very organic nature of wood, the smell, again, you know, looking at the senses, uh, senses are, are also crucial. And what I've also observed over the years is the uh, kind of propensity of people to want to nourish and look after the wood um, and to take it back to some extent and then to rebuild it and then to sort of stand back and say, you know, I, I, I've done that. But of course, 
that per that process of nurturing and bringing something back to life, I guess we can also, when we look at ourselves, that's exactly what we're trying to do as well, which is to bring something of ourselves back from somewhere. You know, sometimes when people disassociate for very good reasons, as, a, as an illustration, there's something about the wood where you can look at it where it was beautiful uh, and it was awe-inspiring and it's changed. Over time, it's become UV-beaten. It's become yeah, generally weather-beaten. Uh, and actually, when we start to take that back and we have all our tools and we have the varnish or the oils, as we use the Danish oils, um, and we bring something back to life, that can invite that kind of internal dialogue around, okay, what am I doing to nurture myself, to look after myself? How do I bring myself back from this? And we've had lots of really meaningful conversations with our clients around what it means to come back from somewhere and to, to repair. What are, what are Danish oils? It, there's, there's a number of different ways of, of treating wood. Um, you can use varnish, um, you know, which brings out a, a sort of a sheen uh, and we, we see varnish quite often in, in houses. Danish oil is traditionally used in, in a sort of restoration and, and preparation of, of, of wooden boats, as it is, for example, on my desk I'm on now, I use the same Danish oil here. Um, but it has a really lovely smell to it um, and it's long-standing um, and it's a lot of hard work um, to ensure it, you, you have to layer it up. Fascinating. One learns something new every day. I'll send you some. <laughs> well, I mean, I live in a house that's full of wood. It's a very old 17th century house. So it's got massive beams everywhere. It's got massive beams outside. And I'm always wondering what I should do with them. Um, Danish oil, absolutely <laughs> recommend it. Just, uh, it's probably just worth mentioning as well, whilst we're talking about blue space, that green space is very well established in terms of having significant benefits for physical and emotional well-being. So if you're interested in green health, please check out last year's conversation with Dominique Moran, carceral geographer, who found there were significant reductions in self-harm, violence and suicide in prisons that include included green space. Joe, who uses your services? Where do referrals come from? We, we're very, very uh, keen on self-referrals because we, we find that that is uh, far more empowering for people to be able to refer themselves in rather than having to go through the route of a healthcare professional and being done to. Um, because often, certainly from experience, if the healthcare professional doesn't know about the work of the charity, the value of the charity, there may be sort of inadvertently barriers to pushing that person, uh, I'll rephrase that, not pushing, encouraging that person to join our programmes. Um, so actually people who can go onto the website um, and pick out one of our programmes, and we have many, or I should say projects, we have many, including one with the Devon and Cornwall Police working with people in crisis at weekends, and that's one of my other roles um, on, on Friday evenings. Um, we have uh, referrals coming through GPs, counsellors, psychiatrists, psychologists, um, and just about schools, just about everywhere, and parents, or well-intentioned people, providing they obviously have the permission of the other person. People who are looking at sort of advocacy can, can uh, also refer um, people in. And in, interestingly, what we've noticed again since we launched, um, which is some well, 13 years ago, um, the, the feedback, the testimonies, the, 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 just to touch on your point around green space, if I may, 
it is incredibly powerful and life-changing and green space has been absolutely for some as well. Um, blue space, when we look at the, 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 the feedback where it says a life-changing experience, um, the best experience I've had in 25 years of mental health care. Um, some of that, of course, is about the sea. Some of that is, of course, about authentic connection. And there is something about the sea where everybody is together enjoying the moment where we have, we experience authentic connection. And to my mind, the kind of precursor for developing poor mental health is where people are disenfranchised, disconnected. There's something that brings the sea, uh, or I should say there's something that brings people together with the sea as that sort of wonderful um, backdrop. And everybody is there for the same reason. It's incredibly cathartic and it's incredibly powerful as a, as a medium. So I think the, the gist is, excuse me, the gist is to, to where you can engage with green space. And if you can't engage with blue space, but whatever you do, engage with the natural environment. You know, that's been the key, the key message that we, we've tried to convey to people. Um, bathtubs don't do it. Lakes are okay. You do get a little bit of something from lakes and streams, the movement of the water, the sound, the auditory uh, um, process as well. But for us, it's the sea um, you know, because we live in we live in Falmouth. And is there is there much research um, to validate um, your claims about blue space? Yeah, there's there's more and more research coming out um, all the time. I think we we've touched on it with our um, website. I think the um, Centre for uh, Environmental Health um, did something study of human health. Uh, Exeter University have done studies as well. Um, I think the knowledge bar in Truro contains information on it. But as I was saying earlier, we, we're, we're trying as best we can not to focus uh, on that and to look at in terms of feedback, not necessarily. And, and, and just to be clear, it, it's not about not wanting to use qualitative and quantitative. It's about the importance of narrative research and actually having it something from the person about their experiences. It's so to me, and I think our board as well, and our clinicians, so much more powerful. And a lot of the work we've done in terms of the, the um, questionnaires and the feedback, we're not so preoccupied with, you know, looking at the PHQ-9 and the GAD-7s and the Warwick Edinburgh wellbeing scales. What we want to do is hear it from the people. So there is research to support it. There's talk about negative ions, as I think I touched on before when we spoke. But by and large, we're concentrating on the wonder and the awe of it uh, and the human connection. Um, because I think that's more profound. And I think arguably um, that's where it starts because we've been looking at the sea and enjoying the sea and getting so much from the sea long before we even endeavoured to understand the sea and trying to go back to basics in a sense. Thank you. And in, in thinking about who uses your services, are there any restrictions around who you'll work with? I'm thinking that people with long histories of complex trauma often find themselves prevented from accessing therapeutic work. And also, if you're going out to see, I imagine there must need to be a degree of trust in, in the relationship. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, the, the only people um, to date that we have... Uh, deferred their placement uh, with us, particularly for residential um, work. The only people, um, one was acutely psychotic um, and somebody had a script of methadone that they had, um, for their own reasons, had decided to um, sell 
um, prior to coming um, with us, which changed their presentation from the assessment that, that, that we gave. And so what that means is that unless somebody is really, really poorly um, or in crisis at the time that they want to access the service, the service will be made available to anybody. We have a really good assessment process, which is, which is a really robust tool. And it asks two fundamental questions. Is it safe? And that means for them and for others. And is it beneficial? Uh, and if the answer is yes to both, then we won't, uh, we won't turn anybody away. Complex trauma um, and people with complex emotional needs, um, we, we see those people routinely and we support them routinely. And I would go so far as to say we make a beeline for them because other people often avoid them. So complex trauma, uh, and again, just to illustrate the point, the work that we do on Friday working with the police um, uh, on our Golf 999 project, um, a lot of those people are in acute mental health crisis and are suicidal when I meet them or my colleagues meet them, and they are uh, referred in for aftercare um, with the charity. 92% of those people have a history of trauma and or ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and roughly 16 to 18% only have ever had treatment for trauma. So what you see in society is the management of their symptoms rather than actually getting to the root cause and addressing trauma. And as you'll know, you know, it's a somatic memory. You know, often people's nervous system is shot to pieces and it's a long process, you know, to, to stabilize people and to help them understand that their agitation, their anger, their, their hypervigilance, uh, their poor sleep habits are possibly all interconnected uh, and as a result of trauma. It's a long piece of work, which is why often people, um, statutory health will favour six sessions of CBT because it's a quick fix. Um, and I'm speaking on behalf of me, not the charity, therefore I get in trouble. Thank you. How, how are you funded, Joe? We are funded through sheer determination, grant funding. Uh, we do have uh, the likes of the uh, National Lottery who recently um, provided um, one of the largest awards down here. That's for our new wellbeing and trauma service, which is great. We had um, back in 2017, a very large grant from the Treasury. And that was a hand-picked project or service by the, by the, the Chancellor at the time. Um, we have brilliant fundraisers, um, benefactors who provide um, um, support for us. And we sell our services. That's the other point. Um, I hate to say it, but we do um, because we have to survive because if we're not here, people um, people may not be here as well. A lot of the people we help. So um, Royal Cornwall Hospital Trust, Devon and Cornwall Police will pay us to provide support for their staff. We also have employee assistance programmes running so organisations can send their workforces off. And now we have Irene. They can send them off and they go on the beautiful old tall ship out at sea uh, and we'll have a, an amazing time alongside our therapist or psychologist that we have with us as well. Thank you. I know when we spoke before, you placed a real emphasis upon involving people with lived, lived experience in designing services. How, how has that shaped your service, do you think? Well, in the early days, when uh, I worked, uh, as I said earlier, for, for, for the NHS, I spent in the region of 18 months initially doing consultation work up and down the county. And that was meeting with not just healthcare professionals, um, but primarily I was aiming at groups, service user groups, individuals, um, people um, who were struggling, who had been struggling, 
trying to understand where the barriers to accessing services were and what they offered and, and would they like something that would be um, C orientated. I thought it was a good idea. They may just, uh, they may have thought I was uh, barking up the wrong, uh, up the wrong tree and it was going to be a, a very poor experience. So those 18 months were absolutely crucial for me to, and it's, I guess you call it proof of concept. My idea was, I thought, okay. And the feedback was amazing. And over the years, we're meticulous in data capture. How can we improve it? What would you like to see? What's missing in, in, in the community? What's sea sanctuary missing? What should we be doing more of, less of? We, we are rigorous uh, and meticulous in, in gathering as much data as we can. And one thing we're really proud about, and I know she is as well, is our chair of, of uh, trustees, lady called Molly, and I'm not disclosing anything I shouldn't, she's very public about it, and I think she was even on global TV. Um, she is somebody who's been through our programme, you know, and she's one of the loveliest people I think I've ever met in my life. Um, and she's now chair of our board. And she has lived, she has, yeah, lived experience. Um, you know, she's, as I say, she's a, a, often a willing participant in our films and so on. So everything we do is really directed by the people accessing and using our service. And we were always seeking their blessing on any new endeavor, really. I, I think that's about all I can say on that. Thank you. You've won a number of policing awards. So the police have obviously been impressed by your work. How, how has that come to their attention? Um, I, I served uh, for 12 years uh, um, in Falmouth as a special constable working on response. And during the sort of those years, it, it became really apparent that the number of police jobs um, involving mental ill health were going up and up and up. And now I think it's over 50% of jobs like that nationally. Um, and I uh, spoke with, a, at the time, a chief inspector and said, look, I'd be really keen to use some of my uh, um, knowledge as a therapist and that of the charities to work in collaboration. And what that would see would be a, a clinician, myself or a colleague, going out with um, police officers. Uh, and we typically go out between uh, the weekends between six and um, sometimes we get to bed at six in the morning. And what we're dealing with there are people who are in, as I touched on earlier, acute mental health crisis. So often they are suicidal. Um, and just as a, uh, I should say, a slight trigger warning here, um, you know, there, there have been people on uh, clifftops um, and car parks and bridges. And my role there or my colleague's role is crisis negotiation. So it's ensuring that um, they're unsuccessful. In, in their plan and they're crucially we can provide aftercare to the charity which is so often what is missing with conventional crisis negotiation when done through statutory services because often they're referred into community services and often they have uh, weeks or months to wait for support and that isn't good enough you know it's it's woefully inadequate so the police uh, I think we we uh, we had a lot of feedback from people who have accessed the service who so thank them uh, sorry, thanked us, um, and eventually, I think we won uh, the Chief uh, Constable's Award for Innovation. I think we've won four others. I have to say, for my part, the awards uh, are great, but never a focus. You know, they're they're they're, um, they're lovely to receive them, I suppose. But you know, we're I'm personally more interested in anybody we can't help, and why not? 
Um, so the, the work is incredibly rewarding. It's really humbling. Um, and every time we go out, it highlights a deficiency in the, 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 the provision here, I'm afraid. But that's mirrored nationally. As, you, as you're talking, I'm reminded that we interviewed Justin Wigan um, when we first, first started the podcast. He's a sound artist, but working in Cornwall, I believe. And he'd developed, um, to really for him, he's um, drawn to auditory experience, but had developed a bench that, were, that, that encourages people to engage in mindfulness as they're possibly contemplating throwing themselves off off a cliff, a cliff top along the coast of um, Cornwall and Devon. I don't know if you've come across him at all. I've met with Justin. Um, yeah, we were looking at some collaboration um, a few years back, and I think it was around the stumbling block, as usual, for charities was funding. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I, th I think several months ago, um, we, we tried to do something uh, again. I, I suspect in time we will do some collaboration because I think the more innovative we can be, the better. The only issue with that is 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 quite hard to, as you would imagine, preempt where people will be, where they where, where they're yeah. going to go to to in their own lives. Um, you know, we have a place aptly named down here, Hell's Mouth, um, which is where I was on Friday evening, um, and we do have some other places that are um, are, are more popular spots. Um, so yeah, any any innovation I think is is fabulous because clearly what what is being offered at the minute uh, um you know uh, and i'm not going to go into who said that because they're not here to be able to defend their their comments but um you know th this is routine we see this most weeks um and anybody with complex emotional needs or people who present with one of the cluster forms of personality disorders um are, are often unfortunately um marginalized and that sometimes they are more difficult to support but that's because their story is more complex and we have to give them more time as a result of that and until we do and until we bring these sort of community services together as we're trying to do through our new service connecting people bringing them together sharing experiences and stories and fears and um, allowing them to build meaningful trusting relationships and feeling safe because that's the key uh, we were always we we're always going to see this and that's why the charity works so hard because we are I think the National Lottery called us which I ha hadn't come across before a system disruptor I think that's a good thing these days so so we're trying to disrupt conventional approaches in favor of improving best practice and that example really uh, I think demonstrates very effectively how hopeless it must feel for for people um, that are in that position? Yeah, I, I think so, um, because uh, I think the most important thing, um, certainly from my experience of working with people in crisis is, in the main, what they actually want to do is to sit down with somebody and to understand why they feel as they, as they do, because often they don't have that awareness and insight. And of course, embarking in therapy is one thing, but when that's time limited, and they've got 30 years to process where it's time limited. And I'm not poo-pooing CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, because for some it's it's life-changing, it's brilliant. But for others, it's it, it's point, quite pointless. Uh, and what we need to do is, is allow people time, 
they need to be their own experts. Um, and what I do know is where we look at where there's a focus on purpose and meaning in that person's life, meaningful and authentic connections, uh, and where that person is allowed to feel safe and to safely process the trauma uh, and to explore the kind of what's going on in their nervous system, uh, then what we tend to see are better results at the end of it. Most people, most human beings do, as we touched on right at the beginning of this conversation, want to understand how things work. And that starts with themselves. Why do they respond? Why do they respond as they have? Why are their relationships working or not working? We want to make sense of the world in which we live and we want to make sense of our place. You know, so that's what the charity really focuses on as well. Thank you, Joe. Uh, fascinating stuff, really. And you're clearly a very dynamic person with a dynamic organisation. What do you think you have learnt over the course of your work that would have implications for other organisations? I would say that... Um, it's important to innovate uh, and it's important to do the right thing if you know it's the right thing to do, despite or in spite of what other, uh, other organisations or people might say. You know, th there's, there's something um, remarkable about being alongside another human being. Um, it, affords, um, it affords something incredibly special, the bond that you can create particularly when that person is, is often despairing and hopeless. And I don't mean me, I mean any of the people I work with, the, the team are amazing. Um, the Sea Sanctuary's team are, are, are humble, um, hardworking, dedicated. And I'm not speaking ill of um, individual practitioners within statutory health or, or larger organisations. But what I'd say to them is challenge um, outdated, antiquated, counterintuitive treatment, um, challenge it. Every opportunity you come, challenge it. If it doesn't feel right, if your felt sense as a, as a practitioner, as a therapist says, there's something about what I'm doing here isn't right by that person, challenge it and don't stop challenging it. Um, because the minute you stop challenging it, you fail that person. And, you know, I think people are... Healthcare professionals are often railroaded into working within systems that are fundamentally broken. There's systemic failure within these larger organisations that are budget-led, cost-driven. And while cost and, and budget are the, the prim uh, uh, primary drivers within business, care will always be a secondary or third driver. And it's got to be the other way around. And I, I, might, I might sound very idealistic, I recognise that, but we've done it. It can be done, but you've got to have tenacity and you've got to have the determination and you're never out of the fight. You know, you keep on going. So I think we need to we need to change the way we look at things. and We need to challenge. That would be my my answer um, to that. And make sure you're with some other people who are happy to do that as well. That always helps. Yeah. So you're not on your own. That's terribly important. Do you think it's easier to do? the kind of fighting that you're describing if you're outside outside of the system rather than bang in the middle of it? I, I think it's probably easier, yeah, um, because outside the system you will generally find like-minded people who are outside of that system for a good reason. But I think a lot can be learned in systems, inside systems. We can learn what not to do um, and we can take something of... The, the, the failings within those care uh, systems 
and we can turn them on their heads outside. So I learned a lot in the NHS. And again, I worked with some brilliant CPNs and one of, in fact, one of the psychiatrists I worked with um, is one of our directors now uh, and a friend and a colleague, and she's wonderful. And she challenged, um, she challenged just about everything she could um, because she recognized that the, the psychiatric model wasn't, although she's a psychiatrist, it wasn't for everybody and we have to do that. So I think we can learn a lot, but I think there is a break-off point that we have to say, okay, this is how not to do it. Now I'm going to do something that's going to improve healthcare outcomes. Uh, and we need to do that outside, I think. Great, thanks very much indeed. So how have you grown as an individual over the uh, course of your lifetime of charitable work? I think what I've learned uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll slightly separate. What I've learned is how courageous people are um, and the, the, the stories uh, that I've heard that have been, you know, sometimes heartbreaking to listen to. Um, and the, the kind of strength of the human spirit. You know, some people are absolutely remarkable. And unfortunately, they are also the people who think that they are worthless. Um, but the fact that they've survived their, their life experiences, they are quite remarkable, brave, courageous, wonderful people. How have I grown? Um, uh, how have I grown? It's a really good question. I've thought about this, uh, and I suppose um, the answer is that I've uh, grown to accept my limitations as well, because I can't take on uh, everything I can't take on everybody, which is why I surround myself with a, with a fantastic team. Um, and I've, I've also really grown to understand that I need boundaries as well. I probably had a rescuer tendency in me because of my upbringing. And actually, I, that was the, the, the hardest thing working with my therapist, which to, to put those boundaries up for me, uh, that I don't take everything back home with me. Of course, I have notwithstanding, I have supervision and everything else but not to bring all that back with me and not to be absent for my own children. I have two relatively young uh, children and sometimes uh, it does take it out of me. And sometimes the, 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 the accounts that I'm hearing from people have reminded me of my own upbringing, my own childhood. And that's been quite traumatic for me as well as a practitioner. So I think my growth has been in recognizing that I can't do everything, that I need to have very firm boundaries, which is about safety. And I need to spend time with my own family because what I don't want to do is look back and be out trying to save everybody else. And I've abandoned my own family, you know, and, and there was a real risk of me doing that. Um, and I, I don't believe that I'm not wearing a, a, um, a cape or I don't think I'm special or anything like that. I just have a real heart for people. It feels like it's my mission field, but not at the expense of my own um, my own family. I think that's my most congruent answer I can give you. Well, actually, I think it's a very comprehensive answer because what I hear is that you're saying that there are boundaries to keep, boundaries to recognise <clears> and keep, and other boundaries it's important to challenge and to push. <clears> and knowing the difference is when it comes through the kind of experience you've been describing, I think. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm learning every time I go out. Um, you know, Friday was another uh, opportunity for learning um, about what, what does work, what can work with people. 
um, and just the fragility, the fragility juxtaposed by the strength of people as well. On the one hand, you can be sitting next to somebody who ostensibly looks broken, fragile, but when you speak with them, you realise that they are graced with enormous courage and there's nothing fragile despite the physical appearance, that there is just a, uh, there's real armour and that armour's dented, you know, it's a metaphor, I know, but that armour's dented, um, but they're just, they're remarkable people and that's refreshed every time I go out, that sense of awe for that person next to me. Yeah, you can really hear your love and compassion for for people and you can hear that that awe in how you describe um, relating to to the the range of people that that you meet but obviously there are you know that can't be endless can it when you have have your own well-being and family but and obviously the sea plays a huge role in maintaining your well-being but how else do you support your own well-being and do you have any advice for our listeners about how they could protect their own mental well-being yeah I, i i i'm blessed i live in a quiet place apart from when they're playing with a chainsaw in the field below but otherwise it's really peaceful here and I'm in green spaces here uh, um, which I love I'm pretty much in a tree house in my office here which is which is wonderful so again outdoors being outdoors is is crucial um, when we have an easterly here I can smell the sea and, and hear it you know so it's wonderful I get green and blue um, family time something that nurtures me that that speaks to me really deeply laughter humor you know when people think when was the last time we had a real belly laugh um one of my friends asked me like oh your work sounds really hardcore you know when do you have a really good laugh I thought well so um 19 a long time ago you know and and because it does take a lot out of you so is these things to adjust so for me I have a little old Land Rover uh, which is older than me 1967 I have a motorbike um, and I go not material possessions they provide something different the Land Rover we load up we go down to the beach with the children they're all laughing and giggling and making memories the motorbike is just for me um, because I can travel at speed of that and it's just something that's nourishing for me individually Um, and I suppose that leads me into your second part of your question which is advice for listeners would be or would be to really be congruent with themselves. What do they need as human beings to not only flourish and and and, uh, uh, and be okay, but to to squeeze every drop of life that they can from each day? And I know it sounds a tad cliched, but actually, if it's if it's reading more, make plans and read more. If it's going out more, make plans, make time, be intentional, because that's also key. Because before we know it, a week's gone, two weeks have gone. So I'm intentional about what I do. Uh, and I don't leave things for chance unless I want to be spontaneous, which is another part of it, to allow spontaneity. So to go camping in the next field with my son or my daughter. Um, so there's lots of things we can do. I think that that, that kind of uh, contrast of spontaneity is so important, but be, be intentional about what you want to do and take time to be mindful. Again, everybody talks about mindfulness. What does it mean? It means different things to different people. For me, it's slow everything down and breathe in every moment. That's what I do. I do actually smell the coffee in my kitchen and I do smell the roses in my garden, you know, but I'm very intentional about those things. Thank you so much, Joe. I've really enjoyed that conversation. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much for asking me to, to talk about our work. Thanks a lot. Pleasure to meet you, Joe.
Thanks, David. Appreciate your, your questions as well. Thank you.